This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is South Dakota Republican U.S. Senator John Thune. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. See how we're focused on our one planet with six commitments. Visit the Good Growth Plan on the web at www.goodgrowthplan.com. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with U.S. Senator John Thune next. Syngenta's Good Growth Plan is about the biggest challenge facing humanity, feeding a growing population. Syngenta's Good Growth Plan is about six commitments to make crops more efficient, rescue more farmland, help biodiversity flourish, reach and empower smallholders, help people stay safe, and to look after every worker throughout the entire supply chain network. One Planet, Six Commitments. Learn more at www.goodgrowthplan.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Members of the U.S. Senate were not able to agree on a GM labeling bill to preempt states like Vermont from enacting their own set of food labeling laws. U.S. Senator John Thune says a bipartisan voluntary labeling bill was reported from the Agriculture Committee. The South Dakota Republican says Chairman Pat Roberts has made every effort to craft a compromise plan with Ranking Member Debbie Stabenow and other Senate Democrats. When it came to the floor, Chairman Roberts made numerous attempts to try and reach a compromise with her. She rejected that compromise. So he went back to the drawing board, made further adjustments, trying to build on a provision that would trigger a mandatory labeling process, but that was rejected as well. So it just seems like the Senate Democrats are having a hard time saying yes to anything. And by refusing to compromise on the bill, they're Senate Democrats appear to be willing to allow food costs for American families to increase by an average of about $1,000 a year, because that's what this increased labeling cost uh, is going to do. So I, I would have, I strongly supported a voluntary-only GMO food label, but I believe what happened on the floor, the, the attempts that Senator Roberts made, the concessions that were made to try and get a bipartisan bill was something I could support. But I'll tell you right now, I just I think the, in terms of next steps, the balls in the Democrats' court. There were lots of uh, attempts made to try and find uh, some common ground, and uh, they were turned back at every every opportunity by the uh, by the Democrats. So we'll see when Senate comes back from the Easter recess if we get the thing back on track. Through a spokesperson, uh, Senator Stabenow suggested she was willing to work on a viable path forward. Can you interpret what a viable path forward is? Well, in, in Washington, D.C., that's a code for, uh, I'll, I'll work with you if you get me my way. <laughs> and she seems to be responding to a very vocal um, group, minority group of people out there, and they don't represent the silent majority on this issue. I mean, this is a, an issue on which, you know, the science is very clear. Food's made with GMO ingredients, been proven safe by sound scientific research, uh, we know we've got to feed an additional two, 2 billion people on the planet by the year 2050, and we're not going to be able to do that without genetically modified crops. And in fact, uh, you know, if you look at the recent studies of, of uh, food processors, companies, um, if they had to label their products in accordance with the Vermont law, which is scheduled, as I said, to go into effect on July 1, the added additional cost to consumers nationwide is going to be $87 billion. I mean, that's uh, 1400 bucks per South Dakota family. So, that's what an immediate mandatory label uh, would do, and that's why we were trying so hard to get uh, an agreement with uh, with the Democrats in the Senate. But what Senator, Senator Stab, Stab now is saying is essentially, basically, yeah, give us our way, and we'll, you know, um, 
we'll go along with it. But we have, we, as I said, reported a bill out of the Ag Committee that was a voluntary approach, got to the floor, uh, converted it over basically to a mandatory approach, uh, phased in over a three-year period, and uh, they still turned it down. So it just seems to me that they uh, they just don't want to accept yes for an answer. And and for that reason, I think they're going to have to they're going to have to own this issue and all the additional costs that are going to come with it if they aren't willing to come back to the table. Still, twelve votes shy of cloture. What's the difficulty from the industry, Senator, on a mandatory package label? What's difficult from the industry standpoint is fifty different laws. And the idea, I think that the industry was willing to accept, and that's what we sort of came came to an agreement about on the floor, uh, some sort of a phased-in approach, um, as long as it was, you know, it didn't have a patchwork of 50 different state laws. But what we're headed for right now with um, individual states implementing their own mandatory laws, which, of course, by the way, at Vermont, uh, they exempted dairy because that's their home state industry. <laughs> so it's, a, they're, you know, they want to stick it to every, everybody else, but... Uh, I think you just have to, then you'd have to have a, you know, a food manufacturer or processor somewhere that's, uh, uh, just moving, if you're moving, uh, product across state lines, you're dealing with all these different regimes, labeling regimes, and, and that's going to impose an enormous amount of cost on them trying to get their products to the marketplace. So I think that's in the end, um, you know, what the, what the, the hang up is, and it's just, uh, it's a cost issue, and it's a cost ultimately that gets passed on to consumers, and it's the American families who are going to pay the price for this. In conversations with those who have been involved, they say there's two primary goals. Number one, providing the information that consumers want and need to know, and at the same time, not stigmatizing a technology. And some have feared that if you come up with any mandatory particular set of uh, labeling standards, then you stigmatize that product that it's different than the rest. Well, that's true, and that's why uh, we basically concluded that an immediate mandatory label you know, if, they, if we went to an immediate one today, it would be perceived as an indicator that food products made with GMO ingredients are somehow not safe. And that is simply not true. Um, you know, as I said, if foods made with GMO, GMO ingredients have been proven safe by sound scientific research, uh, we need that technology if we're going to feed the planet. And, um, and so it's unfortunately that's the perception that that creates, and if you—that's why you know—you asked earlier about going to a you know a mandatory label. Uh, if that happened immediately, that's the perception that you would create out there is that somehow these ingredients are not safe, and so that we we got to avoid that. Um, and it is it does stigmatize it um, and uh, creates a, a false impression in the minds of the American people when it comes to the things that we put on the shelves in our grocery stores and supermarkets. And so this has got to be fixed. Um, like I said, we put a, a reasonable approach out there when it came out of the Ag Committee in the Senate, and then it was moved further in the Democrats' direction when it got to the floor multiple times, concessions made, trying to find that uh, elusive common ground, and uh, at every turn, the Democrats rejected it. So it's a, so that's where we are, but uh, at some point, you know, they're going to have to own up to the fact that if they're not willing to come to the table and and work with us to figure this out, that there are going to be uh, a lot of people across this country who are going to be facing higher food costs, and that's not something that our economy or American families uh, need to have to put up with uh, because of uh, some uh, ideological objective that certain members of Congress have because there's a vocal 
a minority of people across the country who are in their ear. I wonder if you'd be willing to comment following the failed vote on Wednesday. The Clinton campaign tweeted that they support states' rights, but also suggested that uh, the former first lady support Secretary Vilsack's approach to smart labels. Those two are not the same. No, they're incompatible. And, and what it suggests, I think, is that she probably isn't very well acquainted with the issue, and, and she should get well acquainted. She's trying to have it both ways, which is somewhat typical um, with uh, with her on, on on more than just this issue. But um, yeah, you can't you can't reconcile or square those those two ideas. And uh, she's got to like said there's a very vocal constituency out there uh, on the political left in this country. And um, what they don't recognize is again the important role that. Uh, these types of technologies have played in the increased productivity that we see in American agriculture and how critical that is not only to feeding the United States, but to feeding the world. And so I, I hope that uh, eventually uh, she and others uh, will come around to what we think is a very reasonable approach to moving forward. And um, currently, they're, uh, like I said, they, they've, uh, they've rejected that. Senator, it is budget time in Washington, and we have seen ag groups, conservation groups, and nutrition groups all standing together saying, don't cut farm programs, don't cut crop insurance, and don't cut nutrition programs. Are you surprised with their unified front? Well, I, I've been, uh, it's encouraging to see that everybody kind of has come together on the budget. Um, you know, it's, it's always been, crop insurance in particular, uh, has always been on the chopping block by the, the Obama administration. In fact, the president's proposal, uh, again, this year makes draconian cuts to crop insurance, which is, is the most important safety net program that farmers and ranchers today. And what that shows, I think, is that he's turned a deaf ear to the needs of farmers and ranchers. And in fact, his, the latest proposal would shave $18 billion from the program, and if it's enacted, would make it far costlier for South Dakota producers to insure crops at a time when uh, commodity prices are at their lowest levels in years. So um, these administration crop insurance proposals would be detrimental to South Dakota ag producers as well as farmers in other states. And uh, it was encouraging to see that there was, you know, strong bipartisan opposition to these cuts, uh, you know, across the country, across commodity groups, and that the uh, those and the kind of in the up and down the food chain came together to make it clear that this is something that shouldn't happen. The farm bill shouldn't be reopened. I mean, that's if we, we we pass a farm bill, it ought to that people ought to be able to know that those are going to be the rules of the road for the foreseeable future. When commenting on the president's plan to cut eighteen billion dollars from crop insurance, Secretary Vilsack said it was good policy. Is it? Well, no. I mean, it's it, because this was negotiated and agreed to. I mean, the farm bill was, you know, the ink is hardly dry. It's uh, about a year ago. We got finally a, a new farm bill in place. And if you're going to continually come in and raid farm bill programs uh, to try and fund other areas of the government, uh, then, you know, then what that means essentially is that you basically are reopening a, a, the farm bill. You've got settled law. Law that's put in place is designed to provide predictability and certainty for people who have to make decisions when it comes to planting uh, and their farming operations. And uh, then all of a sudden, you're changing the rules in the middle of the game. So it's not uh, it's not a function, and it's not good policy. I mean, we know this program works. It's been uh, retooled, refined. The savings have been achieved. Uh, there have been cuts and and uh, in crop insurance programs. But the time to do that is when we're debating the farm bill. Not in some kind of um, you know 
just a hail hail mary pass in a president's budget proposal, or in a, in a you know attempt to try and find some some savings uh, when you spend a lot of time and effort. In fact, for that matter, years uh, in the process negotiating these farm bills, working it, and trying to get it to, across the finish line, and then to come in and say, well, we're going to change the rules. It absolutely makes no sense, and I think that's the thing that. That uh, that's not fair about any of this, and um, you know we can debate the policy merits and and implications of uh, prop insurance, but the time to do that's in the farm bill. How do you see the budget process being challenged with the congressional calendar and the election? Well, I think that the uh, you know it's going to be very challenging. It always is in an election year. You get to even numbered years, you're going to have an election. And of course, in every four, you're going to have a presidential election, and we're already in the midst of that. So. I think it will make it uh, difficult, challenging to uh, try and get a, a budget uh, done this year, but we're going to make every uh, effort that we can. We think it's important that uh, we assure the American people that um, we're going to follow regular order. We did agree to some top-line numbers last year, and I hope that the Senate moves forward and not only uh, with a budget process, but making some improvements to the budget process. I've been a big advocate for a long time, going back to my days in the House of Representatives, that we need to reform the budget process in this country because it's a dysfunctional process. It doesn't work. And the reason that we end up uh, most years with an omnibus spending bill or a continuing resolution to fund government is because the budget process is, is broken and dysfunctional. And so I'm hoping that not only... Uh, do you know? Does this lead us to a budget this year? But also to some important reforms that that I think are critical if we're going to get a a budget process that actually works for the American people and actually helps control uh, the growth in federal spending, which is essential if we're going to keep from bankrupting the country and and passing on a, a mountain of debt to future generations. There have been ideas of a biannual budget. Yeah, and I'm all for that. I mean, I think it'd be uh, really, really uh, good for us to spend in one year and, and use the other year to oversight. I mean, we've got a almost a $4 trillion annual budget, and uh, we spend, you know, we spend very little time um, actually figuring out whether those programs are effective and efficient and useful and ought to be continued. And I think that doing uh, budgeting in one year to and then, you know, doing using the other year to do the oversight that we should be doing to, to make sure these programs are working in the way they were intended uh, would be a, a very useful model. And and if you had to do something in the off year, if you had a, an emergency or a crisis, you could always do a, a supplemental bill or something like that. But uh, I just believe that uh, we could benefit enormously as a nation by making some important reforms, uh, including going to a biennial budget, but also making the budget process binding. Right now, it's a non-binding resolution. It gets routine waived. Uh, I would do away with baseline budgeting, which which builds in automatic increases in spending every year, and that's what keeps the, the trajectory of federal spending on, a, on an upward spike. Uh, if we determined year in and year out what was working, went to kind of a zero-based budgeting approach, uh, you know, I think we would uh, get a much better result and so there are a number of reforms that need to be made, and and uh, and I hope that uh, this is the year we get serious about doing that. I've been I've been carrying that message uh, in our meetings with my colleagues in the Senate, and uh, it seems like we're making some headway. A lot of the freshman class, the new people who've come in, share that same idea and goal because they've seen how how it works and and uh, realize that this is not a this is a broken process. The Obama administration is limited on time and on resources. 
And some have mused that their effort toward a Supreme Court nominee might take away from their efforts toward pushing toward the Trans-Pacific Partnership. How do you see the days left in this administration and the priorities that will be set for the good of the country? I, I think this administration is a very, they are first and foremost, if nothing else, a very, very political um, administration and presidency. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, tra- Trans-Pacific Partnership, although they are for it, they know that a lot of their uh, members, Democrat members on Capitol Hill are not, uh, their presidential candidates are not. And so my guess is if something gets kind of shelved or pushed back uh, in a corner, it could be that. Um, I do think the other things that they think have political value to them, like I think they want to make the Supreme Court issue a, a huge uh, national political issue. So I expect that's where they're putting a lot of their efforts and a lot of their time and a lot of their energy. But it would be they would be better served, in my view, because uh, we've made it abundantly clear in the Senate that we're not going to consider um, giving a lean duck president an opportunity to make a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court, and that the people the people ought to have their voices heard. Uh, give the people a voice in this. We're in the middle of a presidential election year. The Supreme Court has huge consequences for the future of this country. Uh, let's focus on things that actually are good, that we can agree on, when it comes to jobs in the economy, and I happen to be one who thinks that uh, trade is really good. It's good for uh, American agriculture. It's good for uh, jobs in this country. Uh, jobs related to trade pay significantly higher wages than those that aren't. And um, so I've, I've told the administration that I want to be helpful to them in trying to get uh, the trade uh, agreement uh, across the finish line. So I hope they'll put more effort and energy behind that and less behind uh, what will be a futile effort on the Supreme Court. But I don't, uh, based on past experience, they don't have a lot of confidence that that's going to be the case. Some believe that President Obama will work to bolster his legacy by advancing his environmental agenda here in the last few months in office. Do you see evidence of that? Do you expect more of that? Well, I, I do. I think these are what he perceives to be legacy issues for him. Uh, I think it's going to be a paper-thin legacy because uh, many of these things could be reversed by a future president, and uh, and many are being overturned by the courts. I mean, the president has had numerous of these, what I would characterize as regulatory overreach attempts, rebuffed by the courts in this country, uh, whether it's uh, the Waters of the United States rule, his uh, so-called clean power plan, or what, uh, what I think more accurately is a national energy tax, and, uh, you know, his attempt to try and use uh, recess appointments to pack the National Labor Relations Board uh, the court ruled nine to zero against the president on that. So, you know, this president is somebody who wants to use executive power to achieve an agenda and uh, and create a legacy. But I don't think it's going to be a legacy that's uh, durable, and uh, and frankly, uh, certainly not one that's good for the American people. But I suspect that in the waning days of this administration, they'll do everything they can to load up, um, you know, policy rules and regulations and things through these various federal agencies that they think help them achieve their their political objectives before he leaves office and, and of course we got a we have a responsibility to be the checks and balances to that we will do everything we can to see that um, he doesn't have an opportunity to further uh, expand and grow the size and the reach of government to where uh, literally uh, farmers ranchers small business people in this country are uh, are constantly um, at a loss I mean this 
particularly the EPA, the Obama EPA, has pushed its way into the day-to-day lives of farmers, ranchers, and small business owners across this country in a way that is uh, without precedent. You mentioned executive order. President Obama, the first sitting president since 1928 to travel to Cuba. Do you agree with his work on executive order of trying to normalize trade between the two countries? Do you see congressional action? I've been generally supportive of opening up additional trade with Cuba, and that, again, goes back to my days in the House of Representatives. Um, I, I do have uh, real concerns about some of the other uh, attempts that he's making uh, with regard to normalization of relations there, simply because I don't think you want to reward uh, bad behavior. I mean, creating an embassy there, uh, doing a lot of the things that he's attempting to do, um, I think fly in the face of what we try to do in terms of promoting freedom and democracy around the world. I mean, this is a country that uh, represses the rights of people when it comes to speech and expression uh, and, uh, you know, continues to imprison people for speaking out. Uh, this is a country that um, you, you don't want to, you know, I think, go to the full lengths that he's talking about in terms of opening up complete and full diplomatic relationships. That said... Uh, we have, uh, I think, in the past uh, tried uh, through the use of uh, trade to get uh, Cuba to come more into the uh, into the um, the world, into the international uh, marketplace, and, and hopefully, in doing so, uh, get them to a point where they're ready to start changing their behavior. So I've had, <laughs> when it comes to the trade issue and the agricultural trade, I've been generally supportive of that, but I also recognize. Uh, how important it is that we send the right messages and the right signals in terms of uh, the, the the behavior of the regime there, and uh, and I hope that the president uh, uses discretion when it comes to uh, you know rewarding uh, behavior from uh, a regime that has not demonstrated, I think, uh, the kind of um, record that uh, warrants full recognition by the United States. Senator Thune, thank you for spending time with us here on Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and, sir, you have an open forum. Always going to be with you. Thanks, Jeff. Our thanks to South Dakota U.S. Senator John Thune, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. See how we're focused on our one planet with six commitments. Visit the Good Growth Plan on the web at www.goodgrowthplan.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Downing.